In his book, Fully Alive, Christian comedian Ken Davis recounted an incident from his college days. His class had been asked to deliver a persuasive speech in which they would be graded on their creativity, their persuasiveness, and the ability to drive home their point in a memorable way. And the title of Ken Davis' talk was The Law of the Pendulum. The Law of the Pendulum. And Davis spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the principles of of physics that govern a swinging pendulum. Because of friction and gravity, a swinging pendulum can never return to a higher point than what it was released. And so I made a little pendulum today to illustrate it. We'll talk about he illustrated how he did in a little bit. But if I release it from this point, better get out of the way of the microphone, then when I let go, see it never comes up as high as it did before. No matter how high you take it, because of friction and gravity, it's never until it comes to a complete stop. And so Ken Davis demonstrated the law of pendulum by attaching a child's toy top to a three-foot string, which was attached to the top of the backboard, or the blackboard with a thumbtack, and he pulled it to one side, and then he let go, and then he took a marker and marked each place until in about a minute came to a complete stop. Then he asked the people in the room, how many of them believed the law of the pendulum was true? The professor and all the classmates raised their hand. Okay, how many of you believe the law of the pendulum is true? That it'll never return to, the, to a height that it was let go. After everyone in the class, including the professor, raised their hands, the professor, thinking the presentation was over, began to walk to the front of the room. But in reality, Davis was just getting started with his presentation. Hanging from a steel beam in the middle of the room was 250 pounds of weights, metal weights, attached to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. And on one side of the room, there was a table up against the concrete wall and a chair sitting on that table. Davis invited the professor to sit with the back of his head to the wall sitting on that chair. And then he brought the 250-pound weights to within an inch of the professor's nose. He once again explained the law of physics, the law of the pendulum, and reminded everybody when he released the weights and they went clear across the room and they returned, they would come short of the professor's face. He then asked the professor once again, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And after a long pause, he weakly nodded and whispered, yes. (laughs) Davis released the pendulum. It started across the classroom. It came to a brief stop, and then it began to return, at which point Davis said he had never seen anyone move so fast in his entire life (laughs) as the professor dove out of the way. David then asked the class again, does the professor believe in the law of the pendulum? And the students unanimously answered, no. Now that's not the end of the story. We'll come back in a little while and I'll share the rest of it with you. But when it came to the law of the pendulum, what did that professor believe? He believed the pendulum was going to hurt him. And so he ran from it. What he truly believed in his heart dictated how he behaved and what he did. And that's true with all of us. 
We act or we don't act. We react or we ha react or, or act based on what we truly believe in our hearts. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is telling us the same thing is true about what we believe. For nearly three full chapters, Paul has been teaching us about what he calls the law of faith. Like the law of the pendulum, there's a law of faith. He has made it clear, according to the law of faith, that no one is able to keep the law of God, the Old Testament law, the commandments. No one is able to keep that and then can't keep it as a means of being righteous before God. We're not in right standing before God. We can't keep the law. Therefore, we all need the gospel. We all need to be justified and redeemed and have God's wrath satisfied on our behalf by what God has done for us, not based on what we have done. In essence, that's the law of faith. By faith, we receive Jesus Christ and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the law of faith. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody this morning, so I'm not going to ask for a show of hands like I've done so far. But my guess is, if I were to ask everybody here, how many of you believe in the law of faith? All of you, or at least nearly all of you, would raise your hand and say, yeah, just what you explained it there, Pastor, I agree with that. But as we're going to see this morning, the real test of whether you really believe in the law of faith is demonstrated by how you respond to it in your day-to-day -day actions. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, contain a summary of what Paul has told us so far about faith in this letter to the Romans. So turn to chapter 3, verse 27. The third chapter of Romans, the 27th verse, page uh, 1383. Paul turns here to the subject of boasting, the problem of pride. People like to think that they have something to do with getting themselves saved. In fact, in a recent study by the Pew Research Center, 61% of evangelicals, now we're an evangelical church, so 61% of the people who go to an evangelical church, like Grace Baptist Church, said in the survey that they believe their works have something to do with their salvation. The majority of evangelical Christians in America don't believe in the law of faith. They believe on account of their own ability somehow to keep the law of God or to keep the rules or to do good things has something to do with their salvation. But Paul says in verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by law of faith. It's not a law of works where somebody keeps the law does all the right things, gains enough points to be acceptable to God. No, Paul says, it's a law of faith. You see, the problem is we can never do enough good deeds to be acceptable to God. So let me illustrate it, uh, the law of works, this way. Like the law of the pendulum, it's simple to illustrate. And Paul says in verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So how does that work? Let's talk about how the law of works works, okay? If you were to go over to Boise, maybe it's a CUNA now, wherever they have the Idaho State Penitentiary, they call it correctional facilities. If you were to visit the prison over there, you would find what? Lawbreakers, incarcerated lawbreakers. They are in prison because they have done bad works. 
That's why people are in prison. They either don't play well with others, or they tend to take things that don't belong to them, or they hurt other people. Bad deeds. They are now under the penalty of the law because they did bad things. Now, everything in the legal system and in life in general has taught us that if they want to get out of jail and stay out of jail, they have to devote themselves to doing good works. And it would make sense to them that this is the way that we also become right with God, to do good works, because that's what we've taught. That's what society says. This is the way the law of works works. And everybody seems to understand that. And then one day the prison chaplain comes along and he teaches some of the men that they can't be justified before God by their good works. And this confuses them. Are we confused yet? Let me explain it this way. Two of my most favoritest things in the world are hot chocolate and RC cola. Add peeps and Oreos and I'm good. That's called the law of contentment, but that's a whole other story. And, and I have my favorite way of making hot chocolate. I buy whatever mix is on sale or whatever Jan brings home when I say I, I'm out. And, and then I add to the Swiss mix or the Nestle's or whatever the powdered creamer. You know, and Jan got it in this big gallon jug last time, you know. So, you know, and I put the, the hot chocolate and the, the creamer in in just the right proportion to how I feel about it. And then I had add hot water and stir it, and it's the best stuff ever. So what if I put the empty cup on the counter before I go to bed without washing it out? In the morning, there's lots of gunky brown stuff in the cup. Now, let's say you come over to visit me. It's been a hot day. You're thirsty. And being a good host, I ask if you'd like a glass of RC Cola. And you say, sure. And I reach into the refrigerator, pull out a can of pop that's never been opened, it's been there for a day or two, so it's nice and cold. Then I pull back the tab and reach over the counter, pick up the cup that I'd used the night before with all the gunk in the bottom, and I pour that cold, undefiled RC into that glass, and I hand it to you to drink. How many of you would drink it? I used to do a similar thing, because I've been an RC cola nut my whole life, you know, so never let a good one go to waste, so... In the car, there'd always be right in the middle a can that maybe had some RC cola in it, and the kids would be in the car, and I'd pick it up and go, I wonder if this is still good, and then I would drink it to see. <laughs> but you wouldn't drink the car cola that I put into that cup because even though the RC's never been opened, it's cold, it's refreshing, you wouldn't drink from it because the problem's not with the RC. The RC is wonderful, it's clean and undefiled. The problem is that drinking cup that I poured into. Unless the glass has been first cleansed, that cold, clear RC would make you sick. You see, that's how God sees our good works. There's nothing wrong with doing good deeds to please God. In fact, holy people should do holy things. But unless our souls have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you can do all the good works you want to do and they'll just nauseate God. Because you we'll be pouring those good works into an unclean vessel. If you want your good deeds to please God, you've got to clean up the vessel first. So how do we clean ourselves up? How do we clean the vessel? We don't. God does that for us. 
The Apostle Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. If it wasn't for the grace of God, none of us would be forgiven of our sins. If it wasn't for God's grace, none of us would be cleansed from our sins. So according to the law of faith, we respond to God's free gift in faith. We trust in God, and he does his work in us. And then we begin to show certain signs and do certain things that show that God is doing his cleansing work. We begin to express our faith. We repent of our sins. We are obedient to him. We are obedient to him by being buried in the waters of baptism, as it were, and risen up to a new kind of life. But those responses to God, but of those responses to God, faith is the most important aspect of how we respond. Now, if we were to do a study of what the Bible says saves you, this is what saves you, you'd find that the majority of those verses would tell us that it's by the grace of God, right? We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. It's all of God's grace. Most of, it, most of the verses say that. But running a close second behind that is also the truth that you are saved, how? Through faith. Through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, what through faith and not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Mark 16, 16 says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And then, of course, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. Those verses all echo what we find in Romans chapter 3. So I want you to go back to Romans chapter 3 and back up to verse 21 where we left off in our study of Romans, and, and now we're back to it. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and listen for the word faith here. But now apart from the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, what? Believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who, what, has faith in Jesus Christ. Christ has faith. Faith is the basic requirement of all who would be acceptable to God. Faith, by grace we are saved through faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. So somebody might raise an objection here and say, well, if all I need is faith in Jesus, why should I even bother with good works? I mean, if they don't give me brownie points or add anything to my salvation with God, why not just intellectually believe that what I need to about Jesus and go about living my life the way I want to live it? After all, it's, it's God's grace that does his work in me. Kind of sounds like Romans 6 where it says, what shall we say then? 
Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? The sad thing is there, there's, the world is filled with people who behave like this, who think like this. According to a Gallup poll, 80% of Americans said they believe Jesus rose from the grave. 80% of Americans believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Intellectually, all these people have bought into the gospel message, but many of them act, maybe most of them have acted like it really doesn't make any difference in how they live. And if it doesn't make any difference to their salvation, whether they do good works or not, why should it matter to them anyway? 80% say they believe, but how have they demonstrated it? How have they illustrated it? What do they do, as it were, when the troubles of this world are coming like a 250-pound metal weight straight at them? How do they act? How do they react? How do they live based on what they believe? So here we see works do have something to do with the law of faith. We are not saved by our good works, but faith does work. True faith will be demonstrated. It will be illustrated in the person who has faith. We stop short in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So I want you to go over to second chapter of Ephesians. Back to that uh, familiar verse in, in verse 8. Page 1430 in the Bible in the rack. Remember verses 8 and 9. We just read it a little bit ago in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. And we stop short there. Verse 10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Even though good works have nothing to do with gaining our salvation, they have a great deal to do with living out our salvation. Before we can do any good work for the Lord, he has to do his good work in us. By God's grace, made effective through faith, we become his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, the same power that created us in Christ Jesus when we believed empowers us to do good works for which we have been redeemed. And these good works are the verifiers of our salvation, of our true salvation. Our good works in Jesus Christ demonstrate that we have had the faith and that we are truly saved. To the Corinthians, Paul said that there was within them, the Corinthians of all people, an abundance for every good deed. In Timothy, he instructed that the believer is equipped for every good work. According to Titus 4.14, Christ died to bring himself a people zealous for good deeds. And even this is the work of God, as Paul says, while you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he says, it is God at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Just as we have been saved through faith and are given everything necessary for salvation, we're given everything necessary to faithfully live out the saved life. That is the law of faith. Now, there's a passage in James that seems to contradict what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. And lots of people over the centuries have liked to point out this contradiction. And so this is a good place to turn to it. Turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. 
The second chapter of James' letter, 14th verse, page 1473. And this passage will also serve to bring us back to the rest of the story that I promised to tell you about the law of the pendulum. James asked a very tough question in verse 14 of James chapter 2 related to faith and works. He says in verse 14, What use is it, brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Boy, there's been a lot of ink spilt and a lot of (laughs) pages written about, about that and how it relates to what Paul says in Romans. The truth that James is emphasizing in this text and the Word of God teaches us throughout is that what we do, what we do reveals who we really are. What we do reveals who we really are. The genuineness, the validity of a profession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is more evidenced by what a person does than what he claims. So James goes on to say in verse 15 to give us an example. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The story is told of a European queen several centuries ago who left her coachman outside during the winter while she attended the theater. And the drama that she witnessed was so heart-wrenching that the queen sobbed throughout the entire performance at the theater. But when she returned to the carriage and discovered that the coachman had frozen to death, she did not shed a tear. She was deeply moved by a fictional tragedy, but completely untouched by a real one, which one she was directly involved with and for which she was directly responsible. You know, it's amazing that so many people in our world today can become emotionally involved in a movie, in a play, in a popular song or a TV show, weeping over tragedies and becoming incensed at wrong and injustices, and yet show no real compassion for those in real need. In our artificial, self-centered world, fantasy often becomes more meaningful than reality. So James goes on to say in verse 18, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Paul and Romans and James here, they're not contradicting each other at all. James is pointing out the person who boasts, I have faith, but there's no evidence of it. So he says that's, that's useless. That there's no deeds, there's no compassion, there's no action that proves the person is a person of faith at all. So James says, look at my good deeds. Look at what I do in the name of Jesus Christ and you will see my saving faith demonstrated by my works. James' good works are the verifiers of true salvation. Our good works in Christ demonstrate that we have been saved. The same power that created us in Christ Jesus empowers us to do good works for which he has redeemed us. But then James says something that's both sobering and sarcastic. Verse 18 again. Though someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one? Here's the sarcasm. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The demons believe. They believe something, but they're not saved. It's not saving faith, which is amply demonstrated by what demons do. As far as factual doctrine is concerned, demons are monotheist. All of whom, as James says, they know and believe there's one true God. God is one. The demons are very much aware that Scripture is God's Word. They believe that. That Jesus Christ is God's Son. That salvation by grace through faith. That Jesus died, was buried, and raised to atone for the sins of the world. They believe that. That He ascended to heaven where He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. The demons know quite well that there's a heaven and there's a hell prepared for them. They know the truth about God. They know the truth about Christ. They know the truth about the Holy Spirit. But they hate it. And they hate God. And they hate Christians. Mere assent to God's word as true cannot bring a person to God and to salvation. It takes faith. It takes saving faith. Faith that is evidenced and demonstrated by good works. You see, the demons hate the truth of God's word and they hate God. They hate the truth of God's word. They hate God. Those who have received Christ by faith love God and they love God's word. Remember what Jesus said about that? Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, keeping those commandments won't make us righteous, won't gain us any browning points or bring us to, to, to salvation. So why do them? I do them because I love Jesus. That, that's why we do it. If I don't love Jesus, then I really don't believe in him. See how we can turn that around? We don't do good works to earn anything from God. We do them because we love God. And we love Christ. And if we love Him, we will keep those commands because He asked us to do so. I called this message Faith Illustrated, so I'm using a lot of illustrations today. Let's say you're driving down Highway 16, you go out, freeze out hill, and then you go across towards 65 miles an hour, and you almost come to that double curve heading towards the intersection of Beacon Light Road, and, which is one of the most dangerous stretches in the state of Idaho. And what's the speed limit when you're supposed to slow down? 55 miles per hour. And even when you're going 65 and going there, you came to that double lane there, right there by Firebird Raceway, and all these people want to get around you. You're going 65, but they want to get around you because they want to get around you before you slow down to 55, you jerk. And so... And so you know, but you come to the 65, you come to the 55, and you know that it's the most dangerous stretch of road in Idaho. You know what the law says, but do you obey it? Don't raise your hands again. <laughs> Not many obey the law, even though they believe the law, right? Now, let's say you have someone in the car you care about, somebody that you really love and care about is in the car with you, someone you love who isn't comfortable going over the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit on that stretch of road. Now, for the sake of the law, you might keep the commandment or not keep. For the sake of the law, you might not keep the commandment. But for the sake of somebody you loved, you would, right? 
especially if that person's sitting right next to you and watching your speedometer and saying, please slow down. Yeah, I thought of another example of this because when I was in high school and first learning to drive and they finished the new freeze out hill and uh, my grandparents were getting older and they just couldn't drive in Boise. You know, so here I was like 15, 16 years old and whenever they had to go to Boise, I would drive them to Boise and back and we'd be coming down the new freeze out hill and grandma would always say, no, don't go too fast because the front tires come off the ground. <laughs> She firmly believed that in her heart. That was truth. So as a good, loving grandson who loved grandma and grandpa, what am I going to do? I'm going to slow down so the tires don't come off the ground. Right? <laughs> what does the law of faith look like? If you love Jesus and have faith in him, you'll be in church. Right? You know, it's interesting that 80% of the people say they believe Jesus rose from the grave. Only about a fourth of those people are actually in church today. You know, they, they don't really believe it. We'll be in church. If you love Jesus, you'll study your Bible, you'll pray, you'll give to the poor, you'll give to missions. You'll be heartbroken over the persecuted church in the world. If you love Jesus, you'll be careful what language you use, what kind of friends you hang around with, what kind of movies you go see and TV shows that you watch. So if you believe Jesus, it's, in Jesus, it's going to affect how we live. Now, true belief in Jesus will lead us to live out our lives in a way that please him because we love him. Our saving faith is demonstrated by our deeds done out of a love for Christ and a love for others. But I said we're going to get back to the story about Ken Davis and his presentation of the Law of the Pendulum. Because Davis recounts that one of the most fascinating and unexpected outcomes of his lesson was after the professor had bailed out of the chair, one of the students volunteered to sit in that same chair. And although he flinched <laughs> when the pendulum swung back toward his head, he stayed put. And once the entire class saw the validity of the law demonstrated, they all wanted to do it. So everybody in the class took their turn sitting in that chair. And Davis writes, The desire to live out demonstrated faith is not only adventurous, amen, he says it's contagious. It's contagious. The same is true with the law of faith. No doubt it's adventurous to live according to that law. It goes against every part of our human nature that tells me I have to do something to be right with God. But when I live in a way that bears witness to the fact that I belong to God because what he has already done for me, there's no doubt that's also contagious. And all that's just an introduction for next Sunday because in Romans chapter 4, we're going to see faith illustrated, faith demonstrated in the life of Abraham, the father of faith. Talk about an adventure. You know, we start talking about Abraham in chapter 4. I don't know. We'll have to go back to Genesis, and we're going to have to cover a lot of material because we're going to be looking at uh, Abraham's adventurous and contagious faith. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the faith that you give us when your Holy Spirit works in us and on us 
as we become convicted of sin and righteousness. And by faith, we receive Jesus Christ and trust in him for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins and all the things that go along with that. We become a new creation in Christ. We are given a new heart that is towards Christ. The Romans says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts and all those things that go along with the law of faith at that point, Father. And we, we thank you that the law of faith continues to work in our lives, Father. Whereby faith, we love you, we serve you, we are dedicated to you, we are dedicated to one another in the body of Christ. And Father, as we continue this adventure in Romans chapter 4 next week, Lord, I just thank you that it's going to be an adventure. And you will make our faith more and more real to each one of us. And you'll make Jesus Christ more and more real to us. And we pray this in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.